This evening we're turning to two portions of God's Word, one in each testament, and I'm going to suggest that you put some kind of a mark in each place because we will be referring to them throughout this message. The first is in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 17. And the other is in the New Testament, the prophecy of John, or the Gospel of John, chapter 8. But actually, we're going to begin reading at the last verse of chapter 7. So let us begin with Jeremiah 17 and reading from verse 1, and we'll be reading down through verse 13. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil, and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. And thou, even thyself, shalt discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days and at his end shall be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. 
because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now let us turn to the Gospel of John, beginning our reading at chapter 7 and verse 53, and reading through verse 11 of chapter 8. And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman? Where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Amen. It is the word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to the public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. Let's briefly bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the holy scriptures, and we thank thee for these sections especially that thou hast drawn to our attention on this occasion. We pray, Father, that thy spirit, the true author of the book, will Indeed, awaken our souls to the understanding of thy word. O Lord, we wait upon thee. We pray that thou wilt direct our thoughts in this hour for the glory of Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last verse of John chapter 7 and the first 11 verses of John chapter 8 form what many call the adultery pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. 
this passage of 12 verses in John's Gospel and the 12 verses that form the end of Mark's Gospel are the most disputed sections of the New Testament. Those who dispute them argue that they are insertions into the sacred text, insertions that do not appear in the oldest and best manuscripts. Now you may remember that several years ago, in the final message in our series on Mark's Gospel Vignettes, we considered the problem of the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel and learned that there can be no doubt that they belong in the Gospel of Mark exactly where they occur. Tonight, the Lord has led me to deal with the content of the so-called adultery paracope, but I believe that by introduction, I have to address first the dispute over its right to be considered part of the sacred canon. But there's a problem. And the problem is that examining the issue to its full extent would require an entire course in textual criticism. Just have a basic understanding of the various problems that infidels have suggested in this passage. Well, we don't have the time for that. But if we are to deal with the gospel message of this passage and of the other part of our text in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, we can't devote more than a brief overview to this dispute over the passage in the Gospel of John. So I ask you to bear with me for a few minutes while we cover this ground. The noted 19th century Anglican critic, an Orthodox man, Dean Bergen, spent pages in an appendix to his book, Causes of the Corruption of the New Testament Text, in which he reviewed the various manuscript arguments and the content arguments that some throughout the centuries have raised against the inclusion of this passage. In some modern English versions of the New Testament, notably the Revised Standard Version and the New English Bible, these verses do not appear at all in the context of John's Gospel. Those versions place these verses at the end of the Gospel and describe them as later editions. The Revised Version and the American Standard Version of 1901 place these verses in brackets with the note that they were probably not part of the original manuscript. Some Orthodox critics have speculated that people removed these verses from their place because they were concerned that this passage presented a light attitude 
towards the sin of adultery. You can appreciate the world of the first century and the many of the early Christians coming out of the pagan Greek and Roman culture. And those early Christians had to battle the fierce temptations to unfaithfulness to their spouses that were part of the normal pattern of life in that period. And I would say the circle has come around. And that same truth is about us today. And then church leaders focused more, and this was the great trap that the devil set, they focused more on the ethical behavior that defined in their view what it meant to be Christian as opposed to what it meant to be a Christian. And so they recoiled from what they concluded was the insufficiently rigorous judgment by Jesus Christ against the wickedness of adultery. If you can imagine people undertaking to criticize Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus left no doubt of his position in the case when he exhorted the woman to go and sin no more. And we'll come to a fuller exposition of that part of the passage in due course, that is, if you have the patience to wait for it. On the issue of the appearance of these verses in the original manuscripts, some critics claimed that the earliest fathers of the church, those who came directly after the apostles, did not refer to this account. But in J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels, his massive commentary on the first four books of the New Testament, the author presented a summary of the competing arguments and views in just a few pages, really, and it is quite good. He made the point that two of the fathers, the Latin fathers as they were known, from the 4th and 5th centuries, argued for the genuineness of this passage and referred to those whose faulty ethical concerns led them to remove the account in John 8 from copies of the New Testament. Ambrose was the 4th century bishop of Milan who was instrumental in the conversion of Augustine of Hippo to Christianity. Now in referring to Ambrose and to Augustine by name and to others without naming them, let us remember that not everything these fathers espoused was according to God's word. So I'm not endorsing everything that they said. Augustine laid the basis for the imperial papacy in some of what he wrote about the church as the city of God. But Augustine also wrote about the writings of Paul in such a way that Luther and other reformers felt the power of the truth he expounded. Ryle observed that Augustine argued from this passage for reconciliation 
between husband and wife based on the words of Christ to the woman that she should go and sin no more. Augustine observed, this, however, rather shocks the minds of some weak believers, or rather unbelievers and enemies of the Christian faith, insomuch that afraid of its giving their wives impunity of sinning, they struck out of their copies of the gospel this that our Lord did in pardoning the woman taken in adultery. As if he granted leave of sinning when he said, go and sin no more. Rather than deal with the content of the passage and understand the purpose of Christ in it, these critics resorted to mutilating the copies of the scriptures, a practice that has persisted to this present day. Now, if you want a fuller exposition of the problems with the adultery pericope, then I recommend that you read Ryle's summary in Expository Thoughts on the Gospels. But that is all the time I have to lay the background of this passage before you this evening. I want to come now to the point of the message that arises both from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah and from the New Testament gospel account. So we take up the subject in these passages, the subject of Christ's reply to depravity's deceit. Christ's reply to depravity's deceit. Now let us go back to Jeremiah. And I warned you that we would be going back and forth, so let us go back to Jeremiah and to that statement in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That is, wicked was not sufficient. The Holy Spirit used the word desperately to convey the truth. That verse, both by itself as a separate statement, or what in a homiletics class would be called a capital text, and in its context as a gospel exposition, is God's judgment on the perversion in the human heart. Anyone who doubts the cause of that judgment must take another look at the corrupt world in which we live. Two years ago, two Texas teenagers a male and a female, became parents of twin girls through intimacy outside of marriage. Now, to their credit, they married each other, and their daughters are now two years old. But recently, one writer has attributed the cause of their situation not to anything they did, but to the fact that Texas has banned most abortions. Texas has a law called a heartbeat law. 
that bans most abortions after six weeks. That writer absolved the parents of any blame for their situation, attaching that responsibility to Governor Abbott and the legislature of the state of Texas. The writer argued that if abortion on demand was available to them, they would not be in their current situation. But left unsaid was that, of course, those twin girls would never have seen the light of day. Is not that argument desperately wicked and deceptive beyond comprehension? Is it not wicked and deceptive to argue that males who pretend to be females should compete against females in an array of athletic competitions, sharing their locker rooms and so on. Finally, I'm glad to say some reaction to this trend has appeared, but those females who have objected to this situation appear in the press and media as bigots whom society must not tolerate. Who can know the depths of the wickedness in the human heart? The prophet asked. The deceit of which the prophet wrote appeared in the behavior of the scribes and Pharisees in John 8. So we now go back to John 8, where the scribes and Pharisees made a show of arguing for the condemnation and punishment of the woman taken in adultery. But were they concerned with her case? Were they concerned with her situation? Weren't they intent instead on making Jesus of Nazareth say something by which they could accuse him? At the end of verse 5 in John chapter 8, the question was, what do you say? Here's what Moses said, but what do you say? And the words of the following verse underlined their purpose, that they might have to accuse him. Now Jesus saw through the scheme and turned the condemnation on those who brought the charge. This account in John 8 is the condemnation of those whose pretense exposed this sinful woman to ridicule. Now the reason for the controversy over this passage deals with its subject matter to be sure. And as I've suggested, there were people who thought that it was a tacit encouragement to commit adultery when it was not any such thing. But it is more than that, an attack on the gospel and the mercy of God that lies at the heart of the gospel. The deceit of the scribes and Pharisees challenged Jesus, and he unleashed his reply. And we find in these two passages the exposition of our theme. It has three parts. First, 
the sinister manifestation. The sinister manifestation. Here we go back to Jeremiah 17, at verse 9. And we take note of the fact that Jeremiah 17 and 9, as I said, it is a capital text in some ways. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's one of the great classic statements about depravity. But it's far from the only reference to the depths of ungodliness in human hearts. The days before the great flood gave scope to that ungodliness. So let us turn back now to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And if you know your chapter content, you know that Genesis 6 begins the story of Noah and the great flood. In verse 5 of chapter 6, we read, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was a wicked age. And God's response to that age of rampant ungodliness was to destroy the world by water. Think of it. The entire population of the world. Some estimates are there were a billion and a half people in the world at the time when the flood came. The entire population of the world on the day in which the flood descended on the earth, except for the eight souls that were Noah and his family in the ark, vanished. Vanished. There were no funerals. There were no graves that mark the remains of that civilization that developed from the creation to the flood. It was a lengthy period of time. There was perversion that found its answer in the fury of God. The people carried on their lives in their normal routines. It's the point that Jesus makes in the Gospels. They bought, they sold, they planted, they built, they married, they were given in marriage. And the Lord Jesus made that observation before remarking that they continued in these practices until the day came when the flood descended on the earth and swept them all away. So he was saying, it would be the same way before the coming of divine judgment at the end of the world. People will be going about their routines, engaging in their perversion, not caring at all about the warnings of God. And then will come the day when the fire of God's judgment will sweep them all away. In the words of this chapter of Jeremiah's prophecy is the exposition of the deceitful heart. 
his age was an age of apostasy, like the one in which the scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus the woman taken in adultery. In Jeremiah's time, we read in Jeremiah 17, the people gave themselves to the worship of graven images, and their political and religious leaders taught them in those ways. Yes, the kings and the priests taught them to be wicked. We hear echoes in this chapter in the Old Testament of the apostate age in which we live. An age in which our political and religious leaders at every level of government lead the people to do that which is abominable. And that's what is going on. Our national leaders promote perversion on a broad scale. Our state and local leaders do the same thing. But the key to the passage in Jeremiah 17 is at the end of verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. There it is, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked in departing from the Lord. Well, that's why church attendance has fallen so dramatically. That's why so many fewer people even ascribe any belief in God at all. They're departing from the Lord. And the departure goes beyond turning away from the right way. It is instead a conscious departure, a conscious rebellion against the covenant God. It is the betrayal of which Judas Iscariot was guilty when he gave up the Lord Jesus to the soldiers of the Sanhedrin. The deceitful heart breaks the covenant with the Lord. And of course, Judas Iscariot becomes an illustration because no one except the Lord knew the depths of depravity in the heart of Judas even after he identified who the traitor would be. And he said to Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. The other disciples had no idea why he said that to them. The prophet Jeremiah asked the question, who can know it? And as much as we can discern from the operations of perversion and wickedness and identify there's something wrong there, we bow to the prophet's question and confess that we don't know the depths of wickedness in our own hearts. Now in the case of the passage in John 8, 1-11, to Jesus of Nazareth faced the deceit of human hearts. For the only time in the Gospel of John, we encounter a reference to the scribes and Pharisees together. In fact, it's the only reference to the scribes at all in the Gospel of John. This passage is also the only time in the Gospel of John 
that the Pharisees tried to entrap Jesus of Nazareth. You can read of other occasions in the Gospel of Luke. But the scribes and the Pharisees joined in the attempt to trap Jesus into saying something he shouldn't say. And as I said before, they were not concerned so much with the woman and what would happen to her. She was just a case. Their target was Jesus. They set up a no-win situation. Moses gave the command in the law as to the condemnation upon a woman taken in adultery. And the witnesses who brought this woman had the law on their side, they thought. But they put Jesus on the spot. So that question at the end of verse 5, that was what they drove at. What, what do you say? Now we know what Moses said, but what do you say? They knew what Moses commanded in Leviticus 20 and verse 10, but they thought they had Jesus here on the horns of a dilemma. And in every other case where similar questions were put to Jesus, they thought the same thing. You can almost see them looking at each other and uh, saying to each other, we, we've got him now. He can't get out of this now. If he agreed with Moses, then the people would turn against him. So the scribes and the Pharisees thought. But if he took the woman's side, then they could accuse Jesus of subverting Moses and being a lawbreaker. Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So these leaders of apostasy, for that is what they were in the days of Jesus, devised this desperate subterfuge to entrap Jesus. And in verse 6, the Holy Spirit draws the curtain back from the window into their dark hearts. This, they said, tempting him. That they might have to accuse him. They wanted his words that they were sure he would say to become the basis for their accusation that he was an unjust person. The sinister manifestation is the assertion of pride that places sinful determination above the wisdom of God. Now the response of Jesus to these people was, is curious and has invited a lot of speculation. But the key to understanding the passage is that Jesus set the record straight in a direct fashion. And that is the second aspect of the passage to which we come. The searing penetration. The sinister manifestation and then the searing penetration. Because instead of engaging them directly, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he did not hear them. What did he write? 
It's the only occasion in the life of Christ when we find an account of him writing something. But the Holy Spirit did not supply the record of what he wrote. John 8 and verse 6 includes the statement of an appearance as though he heard them not. Now some commentators, and they're always commentators eager to take the Lord Jesus to task, they have reproached the Lord for engaging in a pretense. He heard them, but he pretended not to. But Jesus heard what they said. What he did, as other commentators suggest, is to decline to be put in the place of a judge and to pass a sentence on that woman. He said elsewhere that he did not enter the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What did he write? Obviously, there's no preservation of what he wrote, but there may be a clue to what he wrote in the passage that is the other part of our text, back in Jeremiah 17. At the end of that passage that we read, in verse 13, we read these words, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. That is, all that depart from the Lord, they shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me, notice, shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. It could be, and... We are just speculating here. I cannot be dogmatic about it, but it could be that Jesus wrote in the dust those words of Jeremiah 17 as the condemnation of those apostate religious leaders who were leading the people astray. We can't be sure, but it gives us perhaps some thought of what was in the mind of Jesus in dealing with these people. But what we do know is that the scribes and Pharisees did not give up. They persisted. While he stooped down and wrote on the ground, we read in verse 7, when they continued asking him, they continued to badger him. What do you say? What do you say? We've heard what Moses said. What do you say? They badgered him about the conundrum in which they were sure they had trapped him. Jeremiah asked concerning the wickedness of the heart, who can know it? Only Jesus can penetrate those depths. And so he did. He stood up at last and gave one command. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Any one of you who is without sin, let him be the one to cast the stone at her. Now, some commentators thought that Jesus referred there to sin in general. 
But others who are more in the main throughout history believe that Jesus referred to the same sin of which the scribes and Pharisees accused the woman. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And having made that solemn statement, we read in verse 8 that he stooped down and resumed his writing on the ground. And the questioning ceased. His word and the application of it to their wicked hearts left them unable to say anything more And it left them unable to remain in that place. The desperate subterfuge that they hatched crumbled into the dust of their guilt. Their consciences spoke against them. For they were each guilty of the same sin, whether outwardly or in their hearts. Their consciences convicted them. And we read that one by one, starting with the oldest, it's striking, isn't it, that we get that detail, starting with the oldest, all the way down to the youngest, they left the scene. When the accusers were gone, And there's no reason to suppose that the rest of the crowd dispersed at that time. They were still there. They had been witnessing this scene. Then Jesus stood up again. And that brings us to the third part of our passage, the saving declaration, the sinister manifestation, the searing penetration. And the saving declaration. Jesus saw none but the woman of all that group that had been gathered there. He spoke to her calmly and with compassion. He asked her where her accusers had gone. And then came his important question. Hath no man condemned thee? No one was willing to cast the first stone. And for the only time in the passage, the only time in the Bible, the Holy Spirit recorded the words of the woman. We never know her name. But she said, no one condemned her. Then Jesus said those words that came with joy to her heart, Neither do I condemn thee. His word was the gospel to her. His word was the word that he would give to the penitent thief on the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was this statement to the woman that he made that some complained did not carry the need for any penance with it. 
something for her to do to indicate how terrible her sin was. So they said Jesus was soft on the sin of adultery, but he admonished her, go and sin no more. In his statement is the word of justification through grace alone. He spoke of mercy to the woman whom others said they wanted to destroy. But for her, there was no condemnation because she was in Christ Jesus. But Jesus stressed to her, as he does to each of his people, that justification issues in sanctification. The person who converts to the way of Christ will go in that way. That is what made the believers of the first century so different. Sinless perfection is an impossible dream in this life. But turning from sin is the practice of Christ's people each day. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The prophet Jeremiah, back in that passage in the Old Testament, spoke of the only safe reply to depravity's deceit. And we find it in Jeremiah 17, Verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. And the very next verse tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So here is the gospel in Jeremiah. The one who trusts in the Lord shall be safe. That's the reply to depravity's deceit. That's how we reply to depravity's deceit. It is to trust in the Lord. We know that the Lord will bring his purposes to pass. We know that the Lord will call to account those wicked rulers who promote that which is evil. The woman taken in adultery came to learn this blessedness, this happiness of trusting in the Lord and hoping in the Lord. She trusted in the covenant God. She placed her confidence in Him so that she would bring forth spiritual fruit in her life through saving faith in the Redeemer. Now I think you can get some sense of why it is that the devil has so targeted this passage of Scripture as to cause some people in the early centuries and in more recent centuries to remove it from the Scriptures. It is because here is Christ's answer to the deceit 
He did not tell her, do better. He said, go and sin no more. He said, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Here was his reply to depravity's deceit. And that reply is still going forth today. Christ is saying to people today, go and sin no more. May God grant us the grace to look unto Christ for his mercy, to hope in his mercy, to have confidence that when he has said, neither do I condemn thee, we know it shall be well with our souls. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we give thee praise again this night for the gospel. We thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ, for his great mercy. Thank thee that he deals with us in mercy. And, O oh, Father, we praise thee tonight for this reply to depravity's deceit. We have to confess unto thee, O Lord, that when we look around us in the world, we find ourselves often in dismay. When we think of the wicked rulers that thou hast judged our nation with, whose business seems to be every day how they can promote that which is evil, Oh, Lord, sometimes we are in despair. But we rejoice that Christ has the reply to depravity's deceit. And we ask, O oh Lord, that thou wilt give us confidence in him, that he will accomplish the divine purposes, and that he will deliver his people. So, Father, we give thee praise for the gospel. We give thee praise for the work of Christ and how we pray that tonight thou wilt seal this word to every soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.